and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of The Long Short. And it's great to be back after a short summer break, right, Drew? Absolutely. And I hope all our listeners, wherever you are in the world, have had a chance to take some downtime over summer and recharge. And you're ready for another season of episodes exploring the alternative investment universe. Yeah, some great episodes been lined up over the coming months and, and, and none more so than today. Uh, you know, amidst treacherous market conditions and, and flagging returns for equities and bond markets, Familiar levers are being pulled once again by institutional investors turning to alternative investments in a bid to protect capital and manage the risks in their portfolios. For a long time, alternative investments have been mostly reserved for institutional investors and ultra-high net worth individuals. Yes, currently retail investors hold very little in the way of alternative investments. Industry analysts estimate anywhere from 2% to 10% of individual investor capital is allocated to them. But a quiet revolution is underway, which is set to transform public and private market investing. Yes, indeed. Retail participation in hedge funds represents an area of increasing interest for individual investors looking to access alternative assets that are offering the potential for attractive differentiated returns through a generally more liquid and transparent fund format than investing in traditional, less liquid private funds. So these liquid alternatives can help bridge the gap between traditional and alternative assets for investors that do not have the mandate or the resources to invest in hedge funds and offer several ways to add value to the portfolio. So what are they and why the great interest has been shown in them now? Here to explain all is Francesco Paganelli, a senior analyst at Morningstar. So Francesco, you're very welcome to The Long Short. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's start with an easy one then, Francesco. What are liquid alternatives? Well, liquid alternatives are, let's call it a subset of the broader, wider alternative investments universe. So I think the the catch is the first step, right? Liquid. So what do we mean with liquid? It really comes down, I think, to regulation and distribution. So in other words... These are alternative strategies offered in a mutual fund wrapper with daily liquidity. You know, sometimes it's it's weekly, of course, but the vast majority of the time it's offered in a daily liquid format. And it's also offered to a much wider audience uh, of investors, as you were pointing out in in, in the intro. So in Europe, they are subject to the usage regulation, for example. In the US, they operate under the 40 Act rules, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with alternative funds, we often refer to the alternative to long-only investments in stocks, bonds, and cash, right? So from this perspective, as you already know very well, alternatives are really a broad charge. So including for everything from commodities to infrastructure, real assets, private equity, and of course, hedge funds. 
So we can talk about where the boundaries are. For example, uh, is investing in public REITs or listed infrastructure firms a form of alternative investment? We can debate that, of course, uh, but it's you know perhaps kind of an, a pointless exercise because what really matters for investors is not the label, but what portfolio impact of a particular strategy or security um, and the specific associated risk factors, right? But anyway, it's important, I guess, to have a definition that is functional to the to the end ob- objective, and um, which is, of course, to reach one's financial goals. So, what we do as a, as a research team at Morningstar is we define liquid alternative in a relatively narrow way. So, to us, liquid alternatives are really those that primarily attempt to modify, diversify, uh, or expand, you know, the dominant risk factors that typically drive traditional asset classes. So what you would find, you know, in the traditional multi-asset portfolio, 60-40, you know, multi-asset fund, uh, which is dominated, of course, by equity risk, credit risk, duration risk, and and so on. And you would include Um, exchange-traded funds in there, Francesco, would you? Of course, although, you know, they haven't been that successful, I guess. Um, so, you know, mutual, the mutual fund is much more, the open-end fund, you know, structure is much more prevalent, is much more, has been much more successful. Um, and also, I mean, basically these funds employ strategies that are, that are where typically used by hedge funds, right? And uh, so, in fact, some people, you know, refer to liquid alternatives are, are as um, hedge fund light, uh, and, you know, by the way, many of the active players today started out uh, in the offshore with an offshore vehicle and then, you know, transition to the wider daily liquid market. So a few more quick questions just to set the scene here. Who typically invests in liquid alternatives and why? Although I think you've outlined that mostly, but just, just to address that directly. Of course. Well, I think, um, especially if we take uh, an historical perspective, which always helps when we try to answer, you know, questions like, you know, who and why. But liquid alternatives are really uh, a post-global financial crisis phenomenon to some extent. So they started out, you know, on the back of the 2008 uh, financial crisis, um, and because investors were seeking a solution to diversify their portfolio. So as we said before, it, I mean, liquid alternatives use a mix of uh, investment strategies and securities and techniques that really differ from traditional long-only exposure to equities and bonds. But they're, you know, wrapped in a familiar mutual fund form to cater to a much larger audience. So the, the who now, it's really uh, that larger audience, right? So it's a mix of client segments. Retail is definitely one. Um, that's true in the US, in Australia, for example. Um, I think in Europe as well as globally, um, we have a lot of interest from family offices, um, fund of funds, private banking clients, you name it. Um, The retail component perhaps around the world depends on, you know, each each region, um, but it's definitely skewed towards the high net worth individual. Um, I think it's first and foremost, you know, it, Liquid alternatives is for clients that really want that kind of liquidity in the alternative space. So people who are unhappy or unwilling to lock in their money uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, people may need liquidity for a million different, um, you know, issues or, or, or reasons again because they, they don't have the capacity to take that kind of risk or they have uh, they don't have the psychological tolerance. Um, so you know, they need that kind of liquidity backstop. Um, so and for for some of them they're not really qualified investors and they don't really have a choice right so that's that's that 
creates, you know, the point of access, you know, to again a much broader universe of alternative strategies. Um, there's also the institutional component, of course, but for them it's more nuanced, right? Because they have more options and flexibility, and there are trade-offs to consider about the specific risk of of each each wrapper. Um, so in a liquid format, for example, you get more transparency, uh, but you also get more restrictions and investment constraints. So there is a trade-off there. Um, so that gets us to the why, perhaps. And in one word, it's usually diversification. Uh, so it may sound obvious, but uh, it's a bit about what I was saying before. Liquid alternatives offer this diversified beta or alpha exposure. Or they provide, again, additional alpha sources to uh, uh, a broader portfolio that is potentially very valuable in the context of portfolio construction. Uh, and they do that in a liquid format. So that's, that's a little bit, you know, the reason why, you know, you would invest into uh, this space. I would say, Francesco, um, just you, you mentioned about liquid alternatives being um, predominantly, if I understood this correctly, uh, through the use its wrapper. But we have seen the globalization take place when it comes to the investing in the liquid format. Obviously, you see what's happening in the US, what they're called alternative mutual funds, and then in Canada as well. Now, that, you know, there's been quite a lot of change taking place and you know it's been pushed on, I guess, by policymakers as well, wanting to have investors access, like you say, that hedge fund type strategy. Is that correct? I guess yes. I mean, it's also part, you know, the demand from from clients, from from institution again. Uh, sorry, from um, you know individual investors. Sorry, that you know um, seek you know the kind of you know different differentiated uh, exposure. So it is a global phenomenon. Um, the usage. I mean. In the usage market, perhaps we have seen more more action, more uh, you know global players you know coming into you know the region and launching a usage version of that. But it is overall you know a very globalized uh, industry. Uh, so we often find, for example, the same strategy that is offered across Australia, Canada, US, and Europe, and it's just different vehicles essentially. But it is. As you say, you know, a global phenomenon, and it is coming from the demand of individual investors that wants to diversify. So, if if I'm an investor and I'm looking to allocate to a liquid alternative, what would be the typical cost, then, say, for doing that, and how might that compare to, say, investing in hedge funds? Because you've made this comparison of liquid alternatives being, you know, in your words, a hedge fund light. So would that then suggest that cost-wise they'd be cheaper than hedge funds or competitively priced? So indeed. So at a high level, I think, you know, liquid alternatives are general, generally priced lower than their offshore counterparts. Uh, but but again, life is a trade-off. So sometimes you're also giving up something. So the comparison between hedge funds and liquid alternatives is, is quite tricky. So a liquid format may hinder a given strategy's performance and therefore render you know the less constrained uh, hedge fund track record pretty much irrelevant, right? Because you cannot replicate that in a liquid format. And you know, adding non-manager determined constraints to any strategy rarely results in better outcomes. And essentially uh, offshore vehicles, private hedge funds, you know, they can use more leverage, own more liquid securities, you know, bo- build even more concentrated portfolios. So these are really like some of the key differences. Um, you know, as such, liquid alternatives can 
often can't always, you know, uh, invest the same way as their hedge fund counterparts. And therefore, you know, the comparison is not, you know, apple to apple. And there are, of course, also some spe- specific uh, area within the liquid alternative space that are less portable, let's say, from hedge fund to liquid alternatives. For example, even driven macro trading, relative value strategies, you know, that use a lot of leverage. But now about costs, I mean, again, I said that liquid alts are cheaper than hedge fund, but that doesn't mean that they're you know, it's cheap. In fact, when we compare liquid alternatives to traditional asset classes, so equity, fixed income, and multi-asset funds, they're often actually more expensive than than those than those uh, vehicles. And in absolute terms, that it can also be you know steep, especially in some specific areas. So one uh, one one good example, I think, is multi-strategy funds. So they they're often structured as you know a fund of fund or fund of managers, and they provide access, perhaps even to very specific uh, or, you know, niche asset managers, but fees tend to be quite high because there are many mouths to feed and there, there is more than one layer. So we're talking about perhaps 2% or more of ongoing costs. At the same time, we are seeing some, um, uh, some categories like macro and trend following where we see competition driving fees down. So, um, Pro, these products are often offered at a price that is comparable to uh, traditional asset classes. Um, and there are some also some areas that are a little bit more commoditized to some extent. So uh, the associated fees can be lower there. Uh, it doesn't, of course, necessarily mean that it's, it's a, a superior choice, but there is definitely some, uh, some, co- some pressure, some competition. Um, so there, let's also not forget that there is no passive option. So that's that's big difference, I guess, in the alternative space is that this is uh, that that there is no cheap passive index tracker to compete against. You know, it's the land of active management. So there is there is a different dynamics. Um, I guess the big point, especially for us in Europe, uh, is, is, is about performance fee. Um, in the US, it's different. It's a different story because in the 40 act space, it's really not, 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 not the case. But uh, it is, um, you know, a space where investors need to be careful. Uh, and in use, it's, it's quite common. So more than half, you know, uh, of, of liquid alternatives charge some form of performance fee and from a researcher perspective from an analyst perspective it's very important to understand you know the ins and outs of of the of the structure so we have criticized you know some of these asset manager for example long short um, does it really make sense you know you know to charge a performance fee on top we have seen all kind of, of structure and you know um I think it's, it's very, very important, you know, to understand, you know, the hurdle that, you know, is, is there, um, um, you know, what kind of high water mark is there, the reset period and so on and so forth. But I guess the other, uh, the other point I wanted to make is that, you know, it's, um, we are moving away. So we see fewer and fewer funds with the typical two and 20 structure that was, you know, sort of uh, the typical, uh, price tag for, for hedge funds. What I'm hearing from you then is, is that in terms of the price, it does depend, as you say, on the strategy. It does depend on the extent that the product is scalable. But they would be competitively Indeed. priced to hedge funds. So they would be neither cheaper nor more expensive than hedge funds. It would be competitively priced. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so a really key question here that comes to mind for me at least is when investors are looking to allocate a finite amount of capital 
two alternatives. Should investing in liquid alternatives versus maybe more established alternatives be seen as complementary or is it more of an either-or choice? I think it really depends on the um, on the on the investor. Um, so for for those that are you know able to cross borders, let's put it that way, or you know can invest you know to li- into liquid alternatives and alternative assets in general, like a pension fund or a large endowment, I, I think you know it can be complementary. But you know again, there there are trade offs to consider there. Um, uh, Again, I mean, what we said before, can the strategy be replicated in a different setting with daily liquidity? Or is the liquid version a diluted, you know, uh, strategy and, and can it still succeed with those constraints? Um, and also, by the way, there is, I think, another, another point to make is that what is the overlap between, you know, the alternative space in general, in general and the liquid alternative, you know, subsector? So between alternative strategies and alternative assets, I think it's limited to some extent. It's imperfect, right? So for for instance, private equity, I mean, for some, it really means, you know, private equity investing, you know, with private equity funds, but you can proxy it perhaps, you know, using a liquid format by investing into small caps, for example. So you try to access, you know, private market benefits in the public market, but it's, Again, it's sort of imperfect because you're reducing that illiquidity risk, uh, that liquidity risk, sorry, um, you know, with, with, with other kinds of risks. Uh, but, you know, having said that, for some investors, it's not really a choice, right? So you need to have a liquid asset exposure. Uh, think about, you know, pre-retiree or, you know, anyone who does have, you know, uh, expenses to um, to consider and or, you know, who can't really access um, you know, a, a traditional, let's call it that way, <laughs> traditional alternative alternative uh, fund. And it also depends on your viewpoint. Um, I mean, if you consider, you know, core allocation, what you consider a core allocation and a satellite allocation. So, for example, you know, real estate or land or, infra- or infrastructure can be seen as a core portion of the portfolio, a core um, asset in, into a diversified portfolio, and perhaps, you know, li- the liquid uh, alternative space would act as a complementary. Uh, again, in that case, they can coexist, right? But it also depends on, on your ability and access. EMA is delighted to announce the European Digital Assets Forum 2022, which will take place this October in Zurich, Switzerland. The half-day forum will convene investment managers, allocators and industry professionals at the intersection of alternative investments and digital assets. Speakers and participants will explore the latest frontiers of digital asset investing and opportunities, including the operational and compliance regulatory risks and challenges that need to be bridged for true institutional adoption. To learn more and to register, visit our website at www.ama.org. So then, um, Francesco, how, how would investors then go about deploying then liquid alternatives in their portfolio? Well, um, there are m- multiple ways in which they can deploy it. Uh, I would say they, they should do it strategically, <laughs> uh, we believe, and based on their own specific goals and needs, um, and especially risk targets. So that what ultimately should dictate you know, your asset allocation. Uh, and so that's the necessary premise, I think. Uh, we have developed actually a sort of a framework, uh, you know, to help investors, uh, you know, frame exactly this question, how investors can deploy them into a broader portfolio. 
And in, again, it, it goes back to what I, I keep on, on stressing is the risk exposure that its strategy is providing, the return profile and the value it should bring to the overall portfolio. So we categorize or we split the liquid alternatives into three broad baskets. So the number one is modifiers, what we call modifiers, which is basically long-short equity, long-short credit. So we ex- we expect them to perform well when risky assets are doing well and equity uh, equity markets are rising. Um, you know, of course, a, a particular long-short strategy may have more loading on specific risk factors like value. But generally speaking, there is an equity beta component. Um, and so that sort of limits more or less structurally the, dif- the diversification benefit. So that could be, you know, um, deployed, you know, by investors who are more interested into having or are comfortable with having, you know, some degree of beta exposure to, again, to equity markets, but they want to add, you know, something that is perhaps less volatile, right, that can cope with uh, equity market volatility. And we really don't, you know, consider them, you know, strictly as alternative, again, because of that diversification element. And many asset allocators don't really consider them alternative in nature. Uh, and as such, by the way, we measure success by essentially saying that, I mean, we, we think that these long-short equity funds, for example, should deliver alpha relative to a broader market index because, again, because of that that beta component. Then I guess the second bucket is uh, what perhaps, you know, what, what many people, you know, uh, think when they think about you know liquid alternatives is what we call diversifiers, which which include multi strategy, event driven, equity market neutral, and we expect them to operate independently from equity and bond beta. Uh, so there are potentially higher conditional correlations. Uh, think about an event even driven strategy, where you know um, that is targeting you know a, a merger merger event and the merger arbitrage spreads. Um, the merger spreads can widen when liquidity is drying up, for example. That, of course, has an impact on their performance and then, therefore, they can be somewhat correlated during stress periods. But, you know, typically, diversifiers offer a much broader set of risk factors, um, such as volatility carry, market neutral, uh, relative value, and and defensive factors. So these diversifiers really sort of, you know, expand your uh, risk risk exposure to some extent. That, that, that's how, you know, most of the time they, they, they are deployed. And finally, we have the third bucket, which is the opportunistic, what we call opportunistic. And that includes uh, macro and trend following. These funds can actually perform when equities are in drawdown, as we have seen, for example, this year with uh, trend following. So again, this this is just you know a mental map that hopefully can help investors frame a li- little bit better you know the decision. Again, what's really important is what do they need, what what does the investors need, what is the goal they're trying to achieve, and you know whether they need you know some extra sleep at night or not. And, and Francesco. Um, are we are we able to then incorporate all hedge strategies into a liquid alts product? There are some limitations to that, right? Again, yeah, there is what what we call portability. Again, there are some areas that are more or less that are more portable, other that you know perhaps are less so. We have, I mean, based on the data, we have seen uh, most of the time you can see, you know, very similar, you know, return pattern, but perhaps not the same type of return potential, right? Again, there are, uh, you know, additional constraints uh, that 
and and you know benefits that come you know with with liquid alternatives investing um again i mean that really goes back to the structure of the portfolio with the strategy that the manager is uh, employing so uh, under you know um, you know mutual fund wrapper under uses for example we have limitations on concentration on leverage again of course on liquidity right so those are really like the key constraints and so the big question is whether you can succeed under that set of constraint and we we've mentioned a few times that the attractiveness of alternatives including liquid alts has really come to the fore during the current market conditions or or, or generally some of those products perform well during higher volatility periods but do you see the democratization of alternative assets as a as a permanent shift or something more temporal i would say i would go with Permanent, to be honest. Uh, again, I think that we are seeing higher demand today. Um, it's typically performance, right? And I think this year is is is, is no exception. But um, I guess looking through um, again, uh, you know, from a historical perspective, I mean, barring some regulatory intervention or big events, you know, that change the equation, I would say this is a permanent shift. Uh, I think the democratization is a much broader trend. By the way. You know, crosses financial markets. It's not just about alternatives. And there is also a greater need for customization. Uh, there is greater sophistication in the solution provided, and this all fit. This is all fitting right with the alternative value proposition. Um, there is also some regulatory support, I guess, to some extent. You know, in, in creating platform for liquidity and transparency in, in, in more areas of, of the financial markets, um, lengthening the time horizon. Think, for example, the LTIF in Europe. And but of course, you know, this greater sophistication should be matched by a solid knowledge of what you are in, right? So it's I think democratization is not always an unmitigated blessing. So there are risks associated with that that you need to manage. And and there's a growing pile of evidence of larger asset managers developing these financial products that really enable individual investors to access private market investments in this liquid format that we've discussed. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? I think it's it's a tricky it's a tricky concept to some extent. And by the way, my colleague and director of research, um, Samuel Scott, has written a lot about this about this um, this concept and this this um, broader broader theme and it's really about the convergence between private and public it's it's a really interesting topic i think and it's a, a little bit what we saw 15 years ago right again uh, with the transition from hedge funds to liquid alternatives uh, so now it's it's a private you know coming going from institution to individuals and there are parallels i think um and regulation, by the way, plays a, is going to play a huge role, I think, you know, to simplify the framework, leveling the playing field and so on. Um, so this, again, it, it all fits with, uh, you know, general trend of growth in private markets and expanding the options, you know, available to um, a greater um, audience of investors. I think we, we think it will happen probably first with um, crossover funds. Um, so perhaps, who knows, target date funds, uh, adding a small slice of, of illiquid assets. Uh, but we think it's probably going to happen gradually in any case. It's going to be an evolution rather than you know a true revolution. Um, I guess, again, what investors need to be really careful about is, what they're, um, is that they're not giving up one risk for to take on another, right? So again, uh, 
it's, it's about liquidity, transparency, complexity risks, uh, and that, that, you know, you get, you know, to uh, capture this, this liquidity premium. And from, I guess, the asset manager perspective, from, from the industry perspective, it's, it's a little bit logical, right? It's about wanting to diversify the investor base. So each player wants something from the other side. So traditional you know, asset managers coming into the private markets and vice versa. Uh, I guess it makes sense. From my perspective, again, from a researcher perspective, um, who tries to help you know, the individual investors uh, out there, the challenge is how you determine who is good. Public versus private is, is kind of a different ballgame, right? I mean, how do they, how are assets priced? How are the proceeds delivered? And so on and so forth. So we, I think there are 18,000 private equity funds out there, all claim to have access to the best experts. So how, how can we tell, you know, uh, one group of operating partner is, is better than the other? That's that's a little bit our headache. So Francesca, we talked about the... Um the the demographic of of the liquid oil universe and we mentioned that you know range of two percent to ten percent is coming from the retail investor is allocating uh you know to these products i i see echoes of what what's happening here with what happened in the hedge fund industry where we had this institutionalization take place across the industry where we have pension plans now accounting for one in four of all institutional investors that allocate to hedge funds. Given you know we're at a low number, low to single digits coming from uh, the, the retail side, is it fair to say that the incremental flow of capital is likely to come from these defined contribution pension schemes you know, that are being given more uh, access to investing in liquid products because of what is happening behind the scenes and policymakers saying, look, we're allowing you now to take greater control over your pension and therefore you should be given with that um, with, with that opportunity being given to you, you should be then given access to a wider suite of products and strategies, liquid and illiquid. It's very, it's very hard to say. It's very hard to say. I think um, over the years, you know, um, at least in Europe, several, uh, I guess, liquid alternatives in general have attracted a lot of criticism for not living up to, to expectations. So that's been, you know, uh, an, an overhang, right? But this may change going forward. Again, uh, we are seeing this year, you know, the, the, the true benefits of what it means, you know, to allocate into alternative strategies once, you know, you have the double whammy of, you know, uh, equities going down and, you know, um, interest rates uh, going up. So it's very, very hard to say. Uh, again, there, there are challenges, you know, associated with, you know, selecting, you know, um, alternative funds in general. And we think this is an area where it's really, really crucial to, um, you know, have a solid selection that can mean, you know, all the difference between, you know, success and, and failure, really. So let's talk about that for a second, because that's something that, you know, we passed over, but good to that you brought it up now, which is performance of liquid alternatives. Um, I would say, I would ask a question as to how they've done recently, because we've talked about the great demand now that we're being seen from investors of all types in liquid oil. So how have they done? Um, what have been, you know, among the better performing strategies that we, you know, that have mm-hmm. done well and maybe some that have had a more challenging time of it? Yeah, what's what, what's coming to my mind is the uh, is is the uh, documentary from 
I think it was called the unknown known about former uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, where at some point he says something like, all generalizations are false, including this one. And this is quite true for alternatives, I think. And, and this is why, because when you analyze performance of hedge funds or liquid alternatives, what do you use? You sort of use a proxy, which is often an index. And what is the index made of? It's, it's made of funds, right? It's, so it's basically a, a category average. Now, if you look at the average performance of liquid alternatives, it's been, again, what I was saying before, it's been often disappointing, especially in the decade post-global uh, financial crisis, but surely that's been true for other periods. But uh, that doesn't really mean that there aren't good managers out there, right? So the thing is that dispersion, is, which is basically the difference between, for example, the top quartile fund and the bottom quartile fund, within each category sort of reduces the reliability of these category averages. Um, and so, you know, in some categories, there is a lot of dispersion. That, and you need to consider that when you talk about, you know, uh, you know make general statements about how they have performed. Um, and also, I guess the other point I want to make is um, what... When you talk about performance, you must be careful because it's not really the right approach to simply compare the total return of an alternative fund uh, of an alternative fund relative to a 6040 or, or the S&P 500, right? So when I say disappointing, you know, um, again, many people were disappointed because they look okay. The 6040 really was all that you needed to reach your own financial goals, your own return targets, and therefore. Uh, so, so goes this, the you know the logic, uh, which which I think it's it's misplaced, is that that therefore you don't need you know liquid alternatives. We think you should take sort of a different approach, right? Many managers, by the way, have different goals or duties. So it can be income or it can be safety of capital. So that 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 is a big big thing, right? Um, so again, it 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 goes back to setting the right expectations and um, you know. Basically, you know, trying to understand that you should go beyond, you know, um, you know, just comparing, you know, the headline total return numbers. There are other things that you that you need to consider. Um, it's like it's like managing anyway, the risk of the portfolio or preserving the capital exactly. of the investor, which again we talk about when we reference hedge funds value proposition. You, what you're saying is you would say the same thing about those that would allocate to liquid alternatives need to look at the risk-adjusted return, yes? Absolutely, and also the portfolio effect, right? I mean, even for example, let's make you know another example. I mean, even a negative expected return strategy can be beneficial to a broader portfolio. Think like insurance, right? Uh, so, you know, it's, um, it's a little bit more complicated to some extent, you know. Um, but uh, I, what I was going at is, is the best and worst, right? So when we, we can talk about many different data points, but I think trend following is um, it, it's a really um, super interesting example, right? I mean, this year it's been probably the best strategy um, so far for 2022 across, you know, the entire spectrum of, um, um, you know, categories and strategies, again, alongside perhaps, you know, some energy or commodity funds. And this trend following, in fact, really benefited from uh, being short rates and long long commodities and they're up, you know, uh, 20% or more year, year to date. And again, this is really super helpful from a portfolio standpoint when you have, you know, all the rest of the traditional assets, you know, going down. I think one of the worst for me, 
um, over the years, um, uh, it's been quite disappointing is uh, alternative with premium, especially, and this is disappointing, especially given the hype that surrounded, you know, the arrival. So we have seen at some point, I think around 2016, 2017, a lot of players coming into the market with alternative risk premium strategies. Um, and they attracted a lot of inflows as well. And for a variety of reasons, they just have you know, haven't haven't performed. Uh, they sort of disappointed. Um, just just as a reminder, alternative risk premia are offer sort of a collection of different risk factor exposures across asset classes and in a market neutral fashion. So being long and short. So so things like value, carry, momentum, and it's all mixed together into one wrapper. Uh, and again, I mean, they, you know, generally speaking, they really haven't, uh, you know, lived up to uh, expectations. And um, again, if you consider more holistically how they have performed, I think one key uh, aspect is about, you know, this 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 concept of conditional correlation. Basically, how they perform when the rest of the traditional asset classes are going down. That's when you want, and that's where you know liquid alternatives can be really truly valuable to an overall portfolio. And I think that point about not just considering returns over a somewhat arbitrary time frame when looking at uh, investing in alternatives of any kind as opposed to public markets or a 640 or whatever it might be is for me the number one point that I would like listeners to take away from from this podcast more broadly. And we've touched upon a huge amount here already, but is there any advice that you would give to investors who are considering allocating to liquid alternatives well definitely yes um i think if i had to boil it down i would i would make three points perhaps so number one and i sort of hinted at this before but uh if you do it uh do it strategically so don't frame you know a liquid alternative investment as a matter of timing so don't use your portfolio diversifiers tactically so many investors ask us, you know, is this the right time for a trend following to perform? And I sort of think this is a, you know, pointless, pointless exercise, right? I mean, by the way, nobody really knows. So that's, I guess, the first one for me. And number two would be, um, I, will, I will quote, you know, the simple but really powerful point uh, that Peter Lynch made, uh, I think, what, 40 years ago, perhaps. This is repeated ad nauseum, but and I apologize with, with our listeners, but there is, I think, no really better way to put it. Uh, and this is know what you own and why you own it, right? So if you don't have time or skill, don't bother, perhaps. Um, again, alternatives, more than any other asset class, really require a deeper manager analysis to find beneficial holdings. Um, you know, um, it's really key to understand why why you want it, right? Uh, what what you want out of it? Is it capital protection? Is it uh, to hedge a particular risk? Is it to expand your alpha sources? That that is really also gonna uh, what's gonna help you, you know, uh, narrow down the options and and drive your selection. And finally. Um, my 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 last advice would be you know to really stick to the game plan um so select the one or two funds that you can really hold so make sure make sure that you can stomach you know even the weaker performance don't obsess with consistency 
of performance. Uh, if the goal is to provide a 1% alpha, uh, don't expect a 10% alpha, right? Um, and if 1% or 2% above cash is too low for you and doesn't really get you, you know, any closer to your return goal, then you may consider, you, want, you may want to consider to add more beta and, and, and so on and so forth. So this, this would be, you know, my top three advice. So finally, then, I, I'm sure this would inspire many listeners to, to go off and continue their education on this space. And Morningstar are among the preeminent commentators on liquid alternatives. So could you just uh, give them somewhere to go from here when it comes to uh, where to go to find out a little bit more about the space? Definitely. You can follow us on uh, on our website. Um, so we have morningstar.com website with plenty of content, you know, on liquid alternatives. But we also have more, I guess, um, closer to home for other listeners like, you know, dot, dot .co.uk or uh, for Italian listeners out there, even, you know, dot .it website. So you can definitely, you know, follow, follow us through um, those channels as well as social media. Well, Thank you, Francesco, for this really insightful primer. Uh, I imagine the term liquid alternatives is one that many of our listeners have, have heard over the years, but maybe they haven't had the opportunity to have someone walk them through this market as coherently as, as you just have. So uh, we're very grateful that you've taken the time to speak to us on The Long Short today. Thank you so much. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. And Eamon has also been proactive in responding to the growth of liquid alternatives. And we have recently published a paper called Bridging the Gap, Mapping the Liquid Alternative Universe, which was created in partnership with Kaya Association and aims to help trustees and others who might be interested get an introductory view on the key questions around liquid alternatives. This paper is available to download for free from Aima.org. The paper includes data provided by Morningstar and other data providers and links to some useful resources for further reading, including the report, are available in the show notes. See you next time. Hi, this is Bill Kelly, President and CEO of the Kai Association, and you're listening to Amos The Long Short Podcast. Join me in episode 14, where I discuss my vision for improving financial literacy and understanding of the alternative investment industry, as well as keeping Kaya's curriculum up to date with the market. And this is a never ending job. Enjoy and stay educated. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.